This week's podcast is sponsored by the book, Glory Lost and Found, How Delta Climbed from Despair to Dominance in the Post-9-11 Era. It's Delta's inspirational turnaround story, written by the editors of Airline Weekly. Lively and informative, just like this podcast. Available in hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and audiobook formats. Hop on Amazon.com and search Delta Book. Let's talk about Ryanair's terrific first quarter. They posted a 4.9% operating profit margin, which is great in Europe's historically weak Q1. But they didn't do as well as they did last year. Fuel costs were fine. Revenue was fine. So what happened? The answer is that labor costs were up a whopping 29%. And despite that, Ryan's 4.9% profit margin was down only slightly from 5.7% the first quarter a year ago. So Ryan's clearly healthy. What about Wizair? Increasingly, you can't talk about one without the other, and we will talk about both of them. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly, and joining me is the assiduous (laughs) Seth Kaplan. Managing partner of Airline Weekly. We're going to talk about Ryan and Wiz. We'll also talk about Aeroflot's challenges and opportunities. We'll talk a little about how legacy carriers like Delta and United view fuel compared to LCCs like Spirit. Plus, we'll check in on SAS and LL. It's all coming up in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. We're starting the show with Ryanair and Wizair, two airlines that are becoming increasingly more comparable. But when one thinks of the dominant LCZs in Europe, EasyJet is naturally included in the mix. But Seth, let's start with this. Which is more like Ryanair, Easy or Wiz? Well, first of all, in terms of profitability, uh, Wiz is, you know, let's see, Wiz a 16% operating margin for all of last year compared to Ryanair's 24%. I mean, you know, Ryanair is in its own orbit. Uh, so that 16% sounds a lot lower, but it's Wiz is still up there uh, among the, the very most profitable airlines in the world. Uh, whereas EasyJet, uh, they have a different reporting quarter uh, period, rather. You can't look at, the, uh, at exactly the year, but if you just kind of look at their most recent 12 months, in their case through March, but similar period doing the math it's uh, they're at 11 percent, so you know significantly less profitable uh, than was there even to even though to be clear even that 11 percent you know places them among the most profitable airlines in europe so by that measure you know wiz is, is closer in profitability to ryanair and in terms of the operating model wiz also is, is more similar wiz uh, very much sort of the ryanair of the east uh, look as both airlines grow uh, whiz off a smaller base and, and actually higher percentage growth. They bump up against each other more. Uh, they see each other a little more in each other's markets. But you know, whiz very much focused on uh, Central and Eastern Europe, even though their busiest base of all is London Luton. Whereas Ryanair, of course, more active in, in in Western Europe, even as it continues to push into Central and Eastern Europe and, and pointees from there, and and just the 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 fare products and the onboard product and all of that. You know, these are both extreme unbundlers. Uh, even though Wiz has has backed off charging for carry on bags, you know something that's uh, become popular among the ultra low cost carriers in the U.S. For example, Spirit, Frontier, and Allegiant all do that. Even some of the legacy airlines with their basic economy products restrict uh, full size carry on bags. So Wiz has backed off that. 
if you look at it now, it, it's a whole lot like Ryanair, you know, where you are going to get the free carry on. You're not going to get much else with the basic fare other than uh, safe travel. And of course, huge ancillaries charging for almost everything else. Uh, they're both leaders in that regard. So, uh, you know, just in terms of finances, as well as uh, kind of how it is to fly the airlines, Wiz is, is very much uh, the closest thing to a, another Ryanair. One difference, although this to some degree has 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 changed as Ryanair pushes into more primary markets or primary airports, I should say, is that Wiz and Ryanair both have also historically sort of eschewed those primary airports. You know, they they very much started with a cost focus, uh, whereas EasyJet has always been more interested in 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 primary airports. Again, changing somewhat, although Ryanair would say, hey, we've never changed our philosophy. It's always about airport cost. And it's just that, you know, the costs at some of those airports ha- have come down as, you know, Air Berlin Monarch, for example, have gone away and then there's and there's space. Yeah, so they've gone out of their way to to attract uh, Ryanair. So as I mentioned, Ryan posted a 4.9% margin that was down from 5.7% the year before, and that was because of labor costs. Why did labor costs rise so much? I guess you could start by asking any of those people who were stuck because of uh, flights that Ryanair canceled beginning in early winter, right before the uh, calendar turned to uh, 2018, they had these pilot staffing issues. Uh, largely of of their own making, they messed up the the scheduling. But it also partly came down to that um, you know just just some of their uh, pay and, and labor practices and so forth became increasingly uh, uncompetitive. Particularly as you have an airline like Norwegian, let's say, which you know as unsuccessful as Norwegian is financially, uh, they're able to offer pilots certain things that Ryanair can't. So if you picture sort of a a short haul pilot in in Europe deciding where to go fly, uh, Norwegian can say, "Hey, come fly with us." And before long, uh, you could be flying Dreamliners across the Atlantic. Pilots typically, not all of them, but typically, they love long haul flying assignments because you can really just get your hours in quickly and and have more days off during the month. Not to mention, it's it's fun to fly Dreamliners across the Atlantic, right? Uh, although, although, to be clear, some men and women actually like up and down. They find that more fun. They find long haul boring, uh, you know. But it's a better deal typically. So with Norwegian doing that, uh, and and with you know all kinds of other opportunities around the world, you know Ryanair unilaterally wanted to uh, to to increase pay. They probably didn't want to have to start recognizing unions, but they. They sort of realized that that was coming one way or another. So after all these years of saying that they wouldn't do that, uh, they, they they did. They said, hey, we're ready to start bargaining with unions. And so, yeah, all of that, um, the pay increases and and, uh, and and now, you know, these these collective bargaining agreements in all these countries pushing up pay uh, at, at, at Ryanair. And so, um, you know, they're still fighting some of that. They say, hey, we're happy to pay uh, people what they want, but we don't want the cost creep to also involve, you know, less flexible work practices and 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 all the rest of it. They they seem to feel like most of that now is is uh, you know, like they've already given the big raises. The 29% labor cost increase that they saw during the first quarter, you know, it's not as if things are are going to continue growing at that pace to some degree that that's that's going to stabilize. Whether it's 4.9% or 5.7%, both numbers are great for the first quarter. If you need proof, look at the other European airlines. Only Swiss and British Airways posted better numbers and most lost money. 
We did. Uh, and, and I mentioned that, Jason, you know, last year, what did I say? A, tw- a 24% operating margin for the year, even though in last year's uh, first quarter, as you said, 5.7, call it 6%. Uh, operating margin versus you know roughly five percent this year. So you could see you you, could, you can have numbers like the ones they just put up in the first quarter, and still do very very well for the year. I mean, look, their their labor costs have permanently increased by you know a couple hundred million dollars a year or something. That's gonna put uh, downward pressure uh, to some degree on their margins. But we're we're not talking about anything that's gonna change who they are. We did we did the math a few months back, and I think we ran it in one of our issues. I you know I think we said you know could shave a point or two off their margins. But in other words, you know if you if you could hold everything else constant, starting with a twenty four percent margin last year, they would still be in the low twenties. Not to say that they'll hit that because you know other things could could happen to uh, uh, put other downward pressure on that. But uh, you know a meaningful increase in in labor costs, but still uh, modest in the context of of an airline that has a whole lot going for it. We mentioned in Airline Weekly that one of the reasons Ryanair bought Vienna-based Lottomotion was to gain exposure to its Airbus fleet. Do the Lottomotion. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Uh, I was going to ask, why do they want to gain exposure to an Airbus fleet? Come on. Yeah. Sorry. And uh, yeah, why do they want that? And how would that help them in in practice? Uh, Well, you know, I think it's a only slightly diplomatic way. Uh, Michael O'Leary not being much of a diplomat of of saying that uh, they would like Boeing to feel like it has some competition. Uh, look, there are there are pluses and minuses to both ways of doing this. In terms of you know, as an airline, do you want to be exclusive, either contractually or sort of de facto, with one uh, airframe manufacturer or not? Uh, and, w- and we've seen this evolution over the years of of airlines that had been exclusive again, either because they they literally promised to be exclusive or because that's just kind of you know what they what they did with one of them uh, sort of evolving in in their thinking. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, look in the U.S., you know, Delta was a Boeing airline. American was was uh, was essentially a, a, a Boeing airline. They had some you know, old Airbus 300s, um, but uh, essentially a Boeing airline. And and to be, you know, because of, of various things, you know, in Delta's case, very clearly just you know, their merger with Northwest, which was a, an Airbus airline, you know, they, they now have mixed fleets. And, and you know, the, the benefit to that is that you have credibility when you go out uh, to bid for you know, when you're putting out an RFP for aircraft, you could say we we're really happy to buy whichever aircraft. Whereas, uh, you know, when you are exclusive with one manufacturer, you know, Southwest has you know, 700 Boeing's. You know, can it really pretend like it like it might buy some Airbus narrow bodies if they're a few bucks cheaper? You know. Eh, you know, Boeing probably knows. Uh, you know, and again, in some cases, it's 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 written into contracts. In other cases, not. But Boeing probably knows that they that Southwest doesn't want a handful of Airbus aircraft. Boeing probably knows that Ryanair, when all it has are Boeing's, probably doesn't want a handful of a handful of Airbus aircraft because of the inefficiencies that come along with that. But hey, now it has some Airbus. So now, you know, it, it, it's gaining that expertise. It's going to need to have, you know, some mechanics who can, who can fix them, some pilots who can fly them and all that. And so it has more credibility when it negotiates with with uh, with Boeing because it's, it's 
It's already flying Airbus. Uh, and, and the bigger you are as an airline, Jason, the less the sort of the cost penalty of having a, a second fleet, as, as long as that second fleet is large enough. Again, you're not going to want you know 700 of one thing and three of another. Uh, but you know we've seen that that you know if if you've got 20 airplanes, yeah, it's a lot more efficient to have 20 of one than 10 and 10. You know, once you have hundreds and hundreds of airplanes, it stops mattering as much. You've got the scale where you, you know you can have those, as I said, pilots, flight mechanics, and so forth. Uh, you know, skilled in one and skilled in the other, and everybody's going to be productive. You know, it's not like you're going to have all this idle time waiting for that. You know, that one uh, oddball aircraft to. Uh, uh, come around to fix it. So, you know, I think legitimately it it, it does sort of uh, increase their their leverage with with uh, with Boeing. And look in the secondary market too, that gives them the opportunity if there's you know if a handful of uh, A320s become available because of whatever uh, a liquidation, what have you, um, they can opportunistically uh, buy those airplanes. Whereas before they they uh, wouldn't have been in a position to do that, uh, you know, without absorbing the big expense then of, of inaugurating this new fleet. As I said, most European airlines lost money in the first quarter. Wizz Air was one of them with a negative seven percent operating profit margin. That was just a point worse than the year prior, and really the story here is they survived some significant fuel and labor cost increases. Yeah, fuel costs up twenty five percent, labor costs, Jason, up. 43%. Now, uh, the fuel cost increase, 25% sounds like a really big number. But uh, keep in mind here, I mentioned earlier, was there a fast-growing airline? And and in fact, their capacity measured in available seat kilometers, ASKs, was up 24%. So so fuel, actually kind of a good story, considering that you know in, in US dollar terms, it, 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 it rose a lot uh, compared to a year earlier. A lot, of air, a lot of airlines, even if they weren't really growing, their fuel bills uh, grew a lot. So fuel basically grew just kind of in line with capacity, not a bad thing. Uh, but yeah, that 43% increase in, in, in labor costs is a big deal. But you know, as 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 they achieve scale, as they continue growing so much bigger, their unit costs in other areas just go down. They become a more productive airline. Yeah, you, you mentioned a negative 7% operating margin. Looking back last year, it was negative 6%. So it declined just a uh, this year. And as we mentioned earlier, this too, didn't stop them the negative six percent uh, last year from putting up a positive sixteen percent operating margin uh, for the whole year. So yeah, this is one of those airlines, really like all European airlines, that is highly seasonal and one like most of them. We mentioned the exceptions: Ryanair, what did you say, Swiss BA. Those were kind of the only ones that that you know managed to to actually break even and, and operate in the black in the first quarter. You know, most of them lose money. Uh, in the first quarter. And this is one of those, but one that for the full year does better than just about anybody else. Michael O'Leary says that Wizz Air's aircraft costs are ridiculously expensive. Is that a problem for Wizz? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good... Uh, Impression there. Uh, well, look, it's it's not too much of a problem for them because they 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 are uh, again, a, you know, one of the most profitable airlines aside from uh, Ryanair, not only in Europe but in but in the world. But yeah, he he's 
you know, he's saying, look, these airlines, they go and uh, acquire aircraft and do sale lease back deals. Those, those are deals where an airline owns aircraft um, and then sells it to a lessor, to, to a leasing company, keeps the aircraft operating at that airline, but is now leasing that aircraft uh, from, from, the, from the lessor. It would be as if you, you, know, you lived in a home that you owned and then you sold it to somebody else and kept renting it from them. And you know, these kinds of deals, depending on the terms, uh, can essentially be kind of high interest loans you know uh, it can be a def- desperate way to finance a business depending look Wizz Air, it's it's hard to believe that they considering how well they're doing that they that they uh, you know have to act all that desperately and their parent uh indigo partners who owns wizair and and frontier and uh all our parts of other successful ultra low cost carriers around the world just placed this big order for you know hundreds of of uh of a325 family aircraft that they're going to dole out to all these airlines and, and so you know we'll see if they end up doing sale lease specs with those hard to say you would think that you know as, as they progress that that um that the terms would just continue to get better for them uh norwegian of course easier to believe that they're having to act somewhat desperate and you know just kind of shore up the balance sheet increase their cash position let's say by doing deals that might not always be so favorable so yeah you know look i'm sure that to some degree ryanair clearly has been very opportunistic about when it buys airplanes O'Leary has indicated that uh you know it's, it's when boeing was desperate to sort of get the last current generation 730 Seven, well, you know, the ones that are called new generations, but the the ones right before the uh, the maxes when it needed to get those off its hands. Ryanair came in at the past; you know, they've bought during recessions and so forth. Um, uh, so to one degree or another, I, I'm sure he's correct that that Ryanair gets aircraft on among the best terms in, in the world, and it, and it does love owning those aircraft and and flying them very productively for for a lot of years. Let's talk about another Ryanair competitor, Scandinavian Airlines (SAS). They had a mediocre first quarter with a negative two percent operating profit margin. So Slightly worse than the year before. It seems that despite a lot of reforms, SAS can't get any traction. Yeah, it, it, it sort of is another one. Is we're sort of well compared to what? Uh, look, I mean, compared to their own history, they're they're doing rather well. Actually, they're 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 one of the better stories in terms of year over year performance. Um, look, they're. Looking back 12 months, including that quarter they just reported, a 6% annual operating margin. Uh, now, that's up three points compared to the year-ago period. That's really good, considering what's happened to fuel costs and, and the pressure that's put on, on some other airlines around the world. You know, Within Scandinavia, Finnair is at 7% for, for also for the past 12 months. We ran a little chart in Airline Weekly this week. So uh, SAS just behind Finnair, but not, not all that far behind it, it's sort of elsewhere in broader Scandinavia, um, you know, Iceland, they are 3%. Norwegian, you know, we, we know what they're doing, negative 8%. And both of those were down compared to a year earlier. So, um, you know, that that's all pretty good news. Um, on the other hand, you know, if SAS sort of wants to play in the league with the big three legacy airline companies, IAG, the parent of British Airways, Iberia, Aer Lingus, Voiling, Air France, KLM, and the Lufthansa Group, you know, it, it's, it's uh, look, that 6% margin, I mean, that, that matches Air France, KLM. And you know we talk about them in very troubled terms. IAG looking back twelve months of about thirteen percent, and even Lufthansa, uh, roughly nine percent in terms of legacy airlines in Europe. It's kind of those three. Then SAS is a lot smaller than them, but a lot bigger than anybody else, including Finnair. Uh, and so, yeah, in, in those terms, it looks more like you know one that we sort of tend to describe as rather troubled. 
than like the better ones, even though SAS relative to its own history and within its own region is is doing okay. So while SAS's situation might be okay, El Al's is surely not. They posted a huge $44 million loss in the first quarter. That's a negative 11% operating profit margin and comes despite a 19% increase in passenger volumes to Tel Aviv. Seth, what is happening here? Yeah, the first quarter is 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 never easy for LL. Looking, you know, last year they were at negative eight percent. You mentioned negative eleven percent this time, so obviously deteriorating. Um, right, it was all those extra passengers. Uh, well, the problem is that uh, they're they're either you know not flying LL or when they are flying LL, they're paying less uh, than they than they used to pay. Uh, this is an airline that grew just three percent. So you can't you know accuse them of of of. Uh, uh, sort of exuberant growth over exuberant growth, just three percent in in uh, ASK terms. Uh, you know their their operating costs rose fourteen percent. Uh, that was on a twenty eight percent increase in fuel costs. So this is one of the many airlines that you know saw their their fuel costs indeed grow greatly in excess of of their capacity growth. You know uh, some things went well. Uh, you know car- the cargo boom. I mean that was that helped airlines everywhere. Certainly helped them. Uh, the local currency. The shekel actually increased, um, so that boosted outbound demand from from Israel. Israelis traveling abroad, and, and uh, hey, that, that 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 actually helps with fuel costs. So that fuel cost increase could have been worse if not for that uh, strengthening currency. But it really came down to the, the increase in competition from them. You know, Israel has become a very popular destination. It's great for the you know travel and tourism industry overall there. But for El Al, it's much more of a mixed bag because they are f- competing more against airlines of all kinds. I mean, you've got Turkish Airlines and Aeroflot, which sort of nip at its heels, these one stop to the world, you know, just airplanes fly all day into Tel Aviv from their hubs from Istanbul and uh, and, and Moscow, lots of other foreign carriers, legacy carriers. Uh, and then, you know, LCCs from everywhere. Pegasus actually from Turkey as well, um, but you know Wizz Air, Ryanair, EasyJet. It's an open secret that that Israel right now is is a um, is a popular destination, and, and airlines have been uh, piling in. Partly thanks to deregulation, it has become easier for them to do so. Again, good for tourism in general in, in Israel. You know, good public policy probably, right? But not so good for uh, for the airline itself. So here in America, we've been enjoying some boom years. So much that it feels a little like 2006 or 2007, which, of course, gave way to 2008, which ended up being a very dark period. But at an investor event recently, Delta's and United's leadership said this time it's going to be different. Seth, why do they say it's different, and do you believe? Yeah, them? they both said that. Speaking at it was a, a a Bernstein conference. American has very much said the same thing, at least at least as enthusiastically. Uh, in recent years, there's there, CEO Doug Parker. That's kind of his, his mantra, right? Um, well, look, um, they say it's different partly because that in the past, you always had at least one desperate U.S. airline uh, that was out there with you know just really low fares, kind of pricing for cash, you call it, right? Just doing what they could to get money in the door that day, um, you know, even if the, the, the effects on the pricing environment um, and the long-term effects were, were negative. And it just doesn't exist in the U.S. right now. So, so that's that's kind of how all these airlines see it: is that everybody is 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 strong enough to be able to uh, think 
for the long term, which means not only investing in their products and doing all the kinds of things that they're doing now that they couldn't do in the past, but also, you know, just just you know, pricing in a way that they you know consider uh, consider rational. Gordon Bethune, the old you know, former CEO of Continental, used to say, "You're only as good as your dumbest competitor," right? And and basically, there's there's uh, there just aren't any dumb competitors out there these days. And I think more charitably, you know, like I said, in some cases, they weren't dumb. They just were doing what they had to do to keep their airlines afloat. Um, and, and and there's there's just um, there's just none of that out there uh, right now. In terms of you know, do I believe them? I mean, if here fuel costs are up. You know, these airlines are are, are going to make a whole lot of money this year. I mean, they're going to be off their highs. Uh, in terms of operating margins and you know net profits and all of it, um, it's this year is not going to look like you know 2014-15, so, but they're going to do really really well in an environment where economic metrics are not so different from times in the past where where uh, these airlines have 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 uh, have really struggled. So broadly speaking, at least, uh, yeah, they they. They seem to be right, uh, you know, which is not to say that some, that, you know, that a shock, uh, you know, whether God forbid terrorism or you know a health pandemic uh, in terms of you know, demand shocks or a recession or a, or a cost shock like a spike in fuel costs, you know, a very dramatic spike in fuel costs. Um, that they can't quickly adjust to. Not to say that those things uh, would not significantly impact them. They would. Fair to say, yeah, not not like they would have in the old days. I'm detecting a bit of a dichotomy regarding fuel. Uh, let me explain. So Delta has said for a while now it's not afraid of high fuel prices, and they said it again in May. Uh, meanwhile, a low-cost carrier like Spirit seems to need fuel to be a little higher so that it can separate itself on costs. So if both a legacy carrier and an LCC want higher fuel, does anyone want cheap fuel? Yeah, and, and to be clear, I think when you say separate itself on cost, you mean on on fares, right? You mean so that there's a there's a fare differential, right? Uh, exactly. In, in terms of okay, yeah. So you're right. Um, and fuel is up, and airline profits this year are going to be down compared to when fuel was. You know, let's talk about the U.S. carriers, but. In, in general, around the world, you know, they'll be down a little compared to when um, when when fuel was cheaper. You know, I, I guess it's you know, if somebody skeptical wants to say, you know, where you know where's this benefit for you know from 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 all the cheaper fuel? It's I think that's a that's a fair uh, criticism, right? There's you know probably more precisely a, a, a sweet spot where, and I don't know exactly where that level is where. You know, fuel costs are manageable. You know, from a cost perspective, but they're not so cheap that you just get people piling in with new capacity, and it all spins out of control. And you know, and, and that's and, and and Delta has kind of said it that way. Um, it's not that they think the higher the better, um, and they certainly all these airlines understand that um, any kind of rapid change, I mean, a rapid increase is uh, is 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 tough to digest because if you know if fuel prices spike very quickly. I mean, look, if fuel prices go up a lot tomorrow, the people traveling tomorrow are traveling on tickets that they bought back when you sold them, you know, tickets when fuel was cheap. Uh, you know, capacity that was planned back when fuel was cheap. The, you know, the, the incremental uh, fuel costs there come completely out of the pockets of the airline at the at first, right? And then over time, they'll adjust by reducing capacity growth or you know, an extreme situation, cutting capacity actually, uh, which which would then squeeze up airfare. So they all understand that 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 a spike is 
is a bad thing. You know, there probably is, you know, that that uh, sweet spot. Uh, Bastion, by the way, at the conference said seventy, eighty, ninety dollar uh, fuel. Um, so, uh, so you know, I think uh, that's fair. Um, and I should say, you know, I don't can't oversimplify and say, well, uh, you know, they're making less money now. It's it's all because of a more expensive fuel. These airlines have all also swallowed um, significant labor cost increases. So it's always, you know, a move, moving target and hard to isolate the variables. But, you know, clearly they're doing fine now with fuel priced at levels that, that would have been very problematic uh, not too many years ago. Ed Bastian also said, uh, Delta doesn't fear low cost long haul carriers. I'm wondering if that is smart. Uh, I say that because even if low-cost long-haul is an uphill battle or even a fool's errand, you're dealing with a reckless competitor, and that can be just as damaging as a competent one. I guess Gordon Bethune informs this question as well. (laughs) Also, uh, Bastian said those airlines get their passengers from the couch, which I thought was amusing. And I'm just wondering, what do you think about both those ideas? Yeah, Taking the second one first, what what he means when he says they come from the couch is that yeah, you know, it's discretionary travel. It's it's people who who you know saw the the cheap fare to you know Warsaw connecting in Oslo on Norwegian and and you know decided to you know from from you know from uh, you know I don't know Fort Lauderdale or wherever they are and decided to do that instead of just doing something else with that money, which might have not even involved travel, right? Just 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 sort of stimulated discretionary travel. And look, there's some of that. But on the other hand, I mean, if we look at what has happened with with short haul LCCs, I mean, that was kind of the prevailing, I should say, ULCCs, ultra low cost carrier spirit and so forth. In the US, that was kind of the prevailing belief for a long time. And then all of a sudden, we saw the legacy airlines, especially American and, and, and United, become a lot more you know, concerned about them. I mean, capacity is capacity, right? And 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 I think what you said is fair. That sometimes the, that desperate competitor, there are a lot of really low fares out there in the marketplace. That um, you know, for as long as they exist, you know, we'll see how long all of this lasts. They can endure, but for as long as it exists, that is capacity, and those are fares that Delta has to compete against. On the other hand, you have to give them some benefit of the doubt in the sense that Delta's transatlantic network is doing very very well right now, despite. All of that, uh, all, all of that competition. So let's see here. You know, these airlines are under pressure, um, and I, I think part of it depends on how much staying power they have and how big they get. You know, they're they're unhelpful. I mean, I think it's tough for Delta to say it doesn't care about them because it's Delta. Everybody would be doing better if if if, if Norwegian wasn't there, right? But sure, you know, are they managing? Yeah, uh, clearly they're they're managing quite well. As you mentioned, legacy carriers do fear short haul LCCs. In fact, they can give them fits. Uh, so I thought we'd do a little airline one hundred and one question here. Why does one model bother legacy carriers but not the other? Yeah, it's just that the advantages that LCCs have on short haul are really important on short haul. You know, tough to fight against, although. These, some of these legacy airlines have, have, have learned how to manage it. Uh, whereas on long haul, it kind of flips. The legacy advantages tend to matter more. Part of it is just if, if you think of the the LCC advantages, the typical advantages, a lot of them are really on the ground, right? It, 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 it's, you know, hey, turn that plane around quickly because maybe you don't have a big, you know, maybe you don't sell connections or at least you don't schedule for connections. So you don't have to have this whole bank of flights where you kind of have a hold all the airplanes there for, you know, 45 or 50 minutes while everybody makes their connections. You know, just, just, you know, get it on the gate and off the gate. You know, that lowers your costs, keeping everything productive. Yeah. You know, you don't have lounges and, you know, just a lot of the other stuff that legacy airlines tend to have, which costs money. They might, they might, drive revenue premiums but but they cost money and on short haul flights you know 
customers are, are, are less likely to to care enough about certain amenities that they're willing to pay big premiums, right? So there are, you know, there are people who are perfectly willing to fly, um, you know, EasyJet or, or even Ryanair Spirit in the U.S. airlines like that uh, for a a ninety minute or, or two hour flight who would not want to, you know, put up with that kind of service on a on a on a, on a long haul flight. Long haul, it all flips because all those ground, all those advantages on the ground matter most. If you're up and down a lot, if you have a lot of flights, right? Your airport cost, if you're using a secondary airport, you know, if you if an aircraft is doing six or seven flights a day, you can multiply that savings. If you're saving, you know, 10 euros uh, every passenger, every departure, you know, you get to multiply that by six or seven. A long haul, it's the opposite, right? Um, you know, all of those ground costs uh, matter less because the airplane's only on the ground a couple times a day. And so your cost advantage just isn't as big because in the air, you know, what are your major costs? Fuel. Well, nobody, no particular business model has an advantage when it comes to fuel. Aircraft ownership, that's really the other big one in the air. Same thing there. You know, again, sure, sure an airline with a great credit rating, you know, Ryanair, somebody might get better deals on on, uh, on aircraft, but it's not one business model per se where you have a better advantage. Now, the, the, the way that you can control your costs uh, on long haul is through density, right? You add a lot of seats to the plane, your unit costs are are going to decline because you get to spread your fixed costs. You know, those same two pilots or, or three or four pilots, depending on the length of the flight, um, you, know, you get to spread those costs among a lot more passengers. That drives down your cost. And indeed, low-cost carriers tend to have more density, but that's not particular to, to the LCC model either. Anybody can add seats to the plane. I mean, Air Canada, I, I mean, I think they added like close to 100 seats to their 777-300ERs when they densified. Um, they, they, you know, just amazing how many more seats they got in between, you know, fewer business class seats and going 10 across instead of 9 across, all the rest of it. So anybody can do that. So it, so, so it just LCCs kind of run out of, you know, okay, well, how do they differentiate themselves on long haul? And on the other hand, passengers do on longer flights care more about uh, you know amenities. They're willing to pay premiums for those amenities. So the revenue premiums matter more on on uh, long haul. That's where legacy airlines you know are best positioned to succeed. The cost advantages matter more in short haul, and that's where uh, LCCs are, are positioned to succeed. So yeah, we've seen it time and again. These you know even when you the, you know the the very successful low cost airlines uh, historically when then then when they've tried to go long haul. It's, it's it's been tough for them. Let's switch gears and head over to Latvia, where Air Baltic is looking for a strategic investor. Why do they want one? They aren't struggling, and do you think they'll get any takers? Well, they they probably just sense their strategic vulnerability as a, as a as a small airline. You're right; they've gotten back on their feet. They've they've got a, an interesting fleet, right? They're moving toward an, an eventual all uh, all C series fleet. So uh, that's it's been a neat airline to watch as they've. As, as they've made that transition, but yeah, it's it's still eighty percent owned by the Latvian government. Clearly, they're the strongest airline in, in sort of their immediate region uh, in in the Baltics. You know, they've they've kind of becoming the de facto carrier for uh, uh, you know not only Latvia where where, where they're based, but also um, Lithuania and Estonia. But yeah, look, they are small, and uh, we know the story with sort of those middling uh, European carriers. So they probably. Uh, Aside from simply wanting the capital to pay for all those incoming aircraft they've ordered, which is important, uh, probably also just would feel better being a part of uh, of something bigger in terms of, of of their staying power. Right now, they they you know uh, they are vulnerable in some senses, and, and kind of you know they're 
kind of depending on the whims of, you know, Ryan or everybody else, you know, you, you can imagine that that any kind of competitive onslaught uh, could could uh, could be tough for them. We've been rather bullish on Aeroflot in recent years, but the Russian airline posted pretty lousy Q1 results. They lost $203 million. Is that just a brutal, brutal Russian winter or is there something more going on here? Well, it, it, uh, yeah, a lot of it is that it's, it's always tough in, in the first quarter. Uh, and in fact, that was a decline from last year. Uh, their revenues rose 10%. Their operating costs rose 14%. So, you know, when you're Costs rise more than your revenue. Sure enough, your 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 uh, profits are going to decrease, or in this case, your losses are are going to um, increase. Uh, they stomached a twenty four percent increase in fuel costs. So again, I mean, this is very common. The, you know, the 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 exceptions are more notable. The airlines that didn't see their fuel costs uh, for the period rise by by considerably more than their uh, in their capacity. Uh, there were some other costs. Um, new terminal facilities at uh, Shemetyevo. Uh, where, where they have their their uh, their main hub. So yeah, it, their their earnings did decline. Uh, although this is uh, this is an airline that continues doing rather well. It's an airline that's that's um that's an impressive story. What they've managed to uh, to achieve to become a uh, a rather respectable um a, a global airline uh, that posted oh a uh, an eight percent operating margin for uh, for all of 2017. So uh, you know the first quarter is always going to be bad for them, but that doesn't stop them necessarily from putting up a a decent uh, year round margin, albeit not one of the highest in the world. One more Aeroflot question before we wrap here. Uh, we wrote in Airline Weekly that they are extremely conservative when it comes to network planning. Can you put some color to that? Yeah, you know they've they've grown, um, but a lot of their growth is kind of just more frequent. Frequencies in, in existing markets, uh, some short haul growth. But yeah, if you look at their long haul network, I mean, the map today looks a lot like it looked five years ago. You know, they serve, well, you know, one example I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Israel, yeah, I said Turkish and Aeroflot, two airlines that sort of pipe, pipe in planes pull people into their hubs and send them to elsewhere in the world. And those those airlines do compare in many regards. They both, the Turkish and Aeroflot, have, have interesting geography uh, for certain traffic flows, just able, able to facilitate certain kinds of connections that not a lot of other airlines can, can facilitate. I remember, uh, oh, when I was flying several years ago... Uh, from Istanbul to uh, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, you know, really the, the the two main options were Turkish, uh, with a stop I think in Baku, uh, same no no change of planes, or, or Aeroflot connecting in in, uh, in in Moscow. I think Air China was the one other uh, option, through, you know, reasonable option through uh, in terms of. The, the schedule you could tolerate through uh, through Beijing, but anyway, you know, th- so they they compete for a lot of the same kinds of traffic flows. But having said that, so like let's look at their North American networks. Turkish serves eleven cities in North America. Aeroflot serves just four, right? So, um, so yeah, a, 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 an airline that has been fairly timid. I mean, look, part of the issue is that uh, not a lot of tourism to Russia. It's hard to get visas there, uh, and and that sort of thing. So, whereas uh, if we're comparing them to Turkish, forget you know. That that very difficult year that they had recently because of the security situation. Typically, you know, you can you know people people want to visit Turkey. Um, it's a place you can visit, you know, rather easily without a visa for a lot of people. Not the case in Russia, but for for whatever reason, yeah, Aeroflot not an airline 
um, that has expanded its global network very much. All right, we'll leave it right there. Thanks for listening. And if you like this episode, share it with your colleagues. They can subscribe to the Airline Weekly Lounge through iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever they get their podcasts. They can also subscribe to airlineweekly.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.